Well, it's great to be with you again. This is the first time we've had uh, two morning services, so it's uh, normally I get a nap between the five o'clock before the five o'clock service. So I, I hope I won't completely run out of energy. Although that's probably not my worst concern, or <laughs> my most significant concerns. Um, it's been great being able to, um, the last couple of weeks, we've worked through some very, very challenging passages, one on marriage, relationship between a man and a woman and marriage, uh, the family. Uh, last week, the difficulties of talking about uh, the socioeconomic system, those who have more power than others. So it's nice to be able to complete the study of Ephesians with a very nice non-controversial section of scripture on spiritual warfare. Um, you're not laughing. Okay, well... But it's true, this is a very important text uh, that we'll deal with this morning. But unfortunately, like uh, some of the texts we've been looking at recently, there's a lot of distortion. And I do think for some believers, there's an underestimation of what is going on in Ephesians 6. There's an underestimation of what spiritual warfare is. We tend to live in a secular age. We tend to look down on, you know, that's a little bit too weird. That's a little bit too out there. That's a little too extreme. And we underestimate what Satan can actually do to us and to a church. That's a problem. There are others, though, as well, who, who look at this text and they can overestimate the problem of spiritual warfare. And I've had friends of mine, you know, every time their car breaks down, every time they have a flat tire, they're blaming it on Satan and it... Uh, well, maybe, but m- maybe you just ran over a nail. You know, maybe go to a mechanic more often. I mean, maybe that's the issue. So whether we underestimate or overestimate, I don't think Satan cares as long as we don't see and engage in spiritual warfare the way the Bible would tell us to do. I think it's also interesting in this text, and that for some of you, uh, you know, if, if you're here this morning, you're saying, oh, my word, spiritual warfare, they believe in Satan and demons, well, you know, what's going on here? And I don't have time to go into a sort of a defense of the biblical understanding of who Satan is, but I just will say this, when you look at the history of the world, and you look at what presently is going on, and you see the amount of evil, the amount of destruction that has taken place in, 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 in almost every country in various ways. If you don't have a personal agent who is behind that evil, if you sort of cordon Satan off, you do have kind of a hard time of understanding why the world is as messed up as it is. And so I think the biblical understanding of having a personal source of evil behind the evil that we see in the world actually provides a plausible and frankly, a reasonable explanation for why the world as, is as it is. I think another interesting thing about this text is, uh, whilst, uh, while Paul has mentioned uh, the evil one, Satan, in, in, in another context, um, he doesn't talk about it very much. And I think some people look at this text and say, why in the world would Paul choose to conclude this book of Ephesians focused on spiritual warfare, the idea that there Satan was an angel who fell and who rebelled against God and he and other angels fell and now they, they formed this, this obstacle to us, an obstacle to the church. Why would Paul spend so much time talking about that kind of thing? And I think the clear, I think the answer is before Paul wanted to finish up his argument in this book, he wanted to remind us that while we, God's people, while we, the church, 
have a responsibility to partner with God in seeing the world come together under the authority of Jesus Christ through the power of the gospel. He wanted to remind us before he, he, he stopped writing to the believers in Ephesus, before we stopped reading this great book, he wanted to remind us is that while the church and while we have been tasked with being part of God's great redemptive plan, he wanted to remind us that there is a person Satan and his uh, fellow demons that, that, that are actively trying to oppose us individually, but also corporately, the church, and wanted us to take up the spiritual weapons that God has provided for us that, he's, that are mentioned in the book of Ephesians so that we could do spiritual warfare in an appropriate way to see God's purposes fulfilled in spite of those obstacles. So in light of that, what I want to do this morning is I want you to, I want us to see three realities of what spiritual warfare is from this text, three realities of spiritual warfare. And then I want us to th- see three strategies that God has given us to fight this spiritual battle in an effective way. So let's dive in with the three realities of spiritual warfare. Take a look at verse 12. We'll see the first reality of spiritual warfare, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. What we see, the first reality of spiritual warfare, is that Satan has an organized, intentional plan to prevent you individually, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, or prevent the church of Jesus Christ, the the body of Christ, to fulfill God's mission of seeing the world united under his authority through the power of the gospel. Notice what it says here when when it talks about the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, the spiritual forces. There's a sense in which he is talking about an organization, a strategy, and there are some uh, evil forces, spiritual forces that have more authority, but they have a, an organizational structure, which means they intentionally have plans to stop believers all over the world and to stop the church and to hinder the church from fulfilling its activity, its mission. There's a plan here. It's an intentional plan. And the second thing you, you, want, you want to see here is th- this plan, while there's this sort of organizational structure to sort of uh, hinder us and hinder the church from fulfilling, in, in it, fulfilling the purposes that God has for us, there's also a very personal way that Satan works against us. Look at verse 11. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That word scheme is a word that, 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 that means uh, mind games, as it were. Scheme is a, a strategy. Satan's schemes, his mind games, is that Satan attempts to get us to believe something about God or ourselves that it's not true. The way Satan moves predominantly is attempts to lie to us, to present lies to us about God, about the world, about the Bible, about ourselves, in an effort to get us to believe something that's not true. And when we believe things that are not true, we find it difficult to live out the reality of who we are in Christ. That is one of Satan's great strategies, the strategy that is pointed out here in Ephesians 6. 
Now, when we talk about different schemes, different mind games, I, I just want to give us a couple of illustrations. I certainly can't. I don't have time to be exhaustive. Satan has many, many different ways he lies to us. But let's go back to the uh, sort of back to Genesis 3 and see Satan interacting with Eve. If you remember our story back in Genesis 1, God made Adam and Eve. They were perfect. They were in a perfect garden. There was no sin in the world per se, certainly not on the, on the earth. And, and God said to Adam and Eve, I want you to manage the world under my authority. And if Adam and Eve had done that, not only would that have been given great glory to God, but it would have meant the flourishing of the, of the earth and everyone that came after them. But unfortunately, Adam and Eve fell into sin The world began to be broken because of sin. We became alienated from God, alienated from each other, alienated from our fellow human beings, alienated even from the natural world. And the earth has experienced a series of chaotic and destructive patterns because sin was introduced into the world. But let's look back at what Satan and how he approached Eve. If you remember the story, God told Adam and Eve, you can eat from all of the trees of the garden except one. And you just think about this. One command, all right? right? It's not the law of Moses, which, you know, 605 command. One. His life was a little simpler back then. They got one command, and, 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 and that's what they needed to know. Any tree is, is, is good to eat but one. Satan comes along, and the first thing out of his mouth, he says, did God really tell you you couldn't eat from the trees? Wait a minute. God said you you couldn't eat from one. But Satan begins to question the goodness of God as he approaches Eve. Did he really say you couldn't eat from any of the trees? What a killjoy. Well, you know, she says, well, we can eat from the trees. She didn't even say we can eat from all the trees except one. Well, we can eat from the trees. But if we eat from this one tree, we'll die. And Satan goes, you won't die. He challenges God. He introduces a lie. He becomes a, another voice for Adam and Eve. Who will they believe? The voice of God, the voice of Satan. <clears throat> and, then the, and, then, and then Satan goes on to tell Eve, well, listen, the reason God, what he's really saying, the reason God doesn't want you to eat from that tree is because if you eat from that tree, you'll be like God and you'll know good and evil. In other words, Eve God is trying to keep something good from you. God doesn't care about you. God is not good. God's holding back. God's God's playing games with you, Eve. And unfortunately, Adam and Eve believed the lie. They stopped believing that God was good. They stopped believing that God was right. They stopped believing that God cared for them. They stopped believing that God had their best interest at heart. And when they stopped trusting and believing that God was good... Satan Adam. And I suspect there's a number of you in this room where that's where you're at. You've had enough suffering in your life. You've had enough difficulties in your life. And one of the things that Satan, his scheme, his mind game to you is to try to suggest to you, if God really cared about me, would he really allow all these other sufferings into my life? If God really loved you, certainly this wouldn't be happening to you. And that's the way he plays mind games with you. And if you stop trusting the goodness of God, you're going to have a hard time living out the mission that God has given for you and for the church. 
I think other ways Satan tries to do this is he tries to make you think that God isn't in control. That's another strategy. Okay, maybe he cares about you, but God's impotent. He can't really organize the world in any meaningful way. And of course, when you look at the world, you know, it's not, it's not completely, you know, insane to think, well, is there a plan, God? I mean, the world is somewhat in chaos. But if you stop believing that God has the power to redeem the world and that God will redeem the world and you buy into that lie, no hope. There's no future. Well, it's not just that he questions the goodness of God or the control of God, the God's sovereignty. Another way that Satan plays mind games with us is he tries to undermine who we actually are in Jesus Christ. This is what Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 were all about, where Paul says to believers in Jesus Christ, your sins are completely forgiven. When he says to believers, you were chosen before the foundation of the earth, and I have purposes to you. I, I have predestined you to good works. When, when, when Paul says to believers, you are now part of the family of God. You've been adopted into God's family. You have an inheritance by the Spirit. You were dead in your trespass and sin, but now you are alive through God, by the power of God, by the power of the resurrection. All of these identity statements for us individually in the church in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, Satan does not want you to believe these things about yourself. He's called in other portions of the scripture, the accuser of believers. Meaning what Satan delights to do is to get you to doubt that God loves you and has forgiven you. A huge strategy. I can't tell you how many believers I've run into who, who think about something they did in their life 10 years ago or five years ago or even this past week. A failure they had when they were walking with Christ or even something that happened to them before they came to Christ. And Satan is always trying to lie to them. He's always trying to scheme with them and to say, if you were a Christian, how could you ever do that? If you were really a believer, why would you fail like that this last night, last week? Satan does not want believers to live in light of who you are in Jesus Christ. Because when we live out of our identity in Christ, we begin to focus our attention on God's plan to be redemption for the world, and Satan wants no part of that. So these are the kinds of things that Satan does. These are the schemes. This is the second reality of our spiritual warfare. There's one more part of the reality of spiritual warfare. I just want you to see just briefly. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's vitally important, believers. I know there may be people in your life who are hostile to you. I know you may have a situation at work where there's a relationship that's strained. There may be relationships in your own family that are strained. There may be a neighbor that's fairly hostile to you because you're a follower of Christ. But the reality is spiritual warfare is not us versus other people primarily. The spiritual battle is with what Satan is doing and how he may be manipulating the situation. Never another human being. So those are the three, three realities. 
three realities of, three realities of spiritual warfare. Satan has a plan. It's organized. It's intentional to undermine you and the church. His plan is to try to get you to believe things that aren't true about God or yourself, about the word of God, about the plan of, that God has. And thirdly, the, the, the battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against these spiritual forces. Against, it's against Satan and what he is attempting to do as he attempts to set up a rival kingdom to God himself. Those are the realities. Um, now let's look at the strategies. How do we fight this? How do we deal with this? And I want to give you three, uh, three parts to the strategy. The first, I want to give you a big picture of the strategy. Secondly, I want to give you a model, sort of an illustration slash model of how we do this. And lastly, I want to talk about prayer and how prayer fits into spiritual warfare. Let's look at the first strategy, and that is the big picture strategy. Go back to verse 10 of Ephesians 6. Paul writes this, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. If you, just, if you just had it with like one sentence to define what it means to do spiritual warfare, it's this, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. If you are going to be effective in spiritual warfare, you have got to see that everything that God has done for you in Christ mentioned in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, you've got to believe that. You've got to believe it in, in, in practice. You've got to believe that functionally. It has to be the way you view yourself. The strength for fighting the evil one and the spiritual battle that we're in is not what you do primarily in this sense. It is what you're able to believe and trust and functionally live out of because of what Christ has done for you. The reality is, is that the, 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 the amazing spiritual blessings that God has given you, it's believing those blessings in real time. It's believing those blessings under pressure is the fundamental way you do spiritual warfare. In some sense, I think the real battle for us as we struggle through this as we attempt through the church and individually, as we want to see the beauty and glory of the unity of all things in the universe come together through Christ, the big battle is, will we believe what Jesus Christ has done for us? And will that be our functional identity? Or will we take on a different identity presented to us in some cases by Satan as being our fundamental identity and makes all the difference in the world? That's sort of the big picture. Let's look at the picture or the model, so to speak, the model or the uh, sort of uh, example um, that Paul provides for us. And what Paul does is he takes a Roman soldier, a Roman soldier uh, in, in, in the, the different um, sort of accoutrements for a Roman soldier that he would put on for battle and applies it to spiritual warfare. I believe that every piece of the armor, as he describes this Roman soldier, every piece of the armor is, 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 is designed to show how we are to put on Jesus Christ. So let's briefly go through that. Looking at verse 14, it says, Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt in a Roman uh, soldier, the belt of truth was what held the rest of the armor together. 
the, 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 the tunic that he would have that, that hung down that would protect at the top of his legs, the breastplate, we'll talk about that in a minute, the belt holds it all together. And what Paul says, if you are going to deal with spiritual warfare, you have to put on truth. You have to functionally be committed to following the truth of God's word, that you are committed to allowing the truth of God's word be the, what, what helps you identify who you are and guide you in your walk with Jesus Christ. It's truth. He goes on to say, verse 13, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. When you put on the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate was designed to protect your sort of vital organs from attack. When you put on the breastplate of righteousness, what you are saying is, I believe that the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been given to me by God, and I am resting in Christ's righteousness to get right with God, not my own. And I'm telling you, Satan would love to have you believe it's up to you and up to your righteousness. Because if he can get you to start to go down that road, he will either crush you under the weight of your sin because you know you're not as righteous as you ought to be, or he will get you in a hamster wheel trying to earn your way with God, conjuring up your own righteousness rather than resting in Christ's righteousness. He goes on, verse 15, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This is the footwear of a Roman soldier. Now, the footwear of a Roman soldier would be like a sandal-like thing, but it would have had spikes about that long at the bottom of the sandal. This was not a good shoe to run fast in. It wasn't designed to do it. What it was designed to do with these wooden spikes or sometimes metal spikes is to be able to have stability on uneven terrain when you were in hand-to-hand combat with somebody. The reality is, as a Roman soldier, when you were in hand-to-hand combat, if you fell to the ground, you were dead. And so these sandals, these shoes, were designed to provide massive stability so that you could go one-on-one with someone and stay upright and able to fight your opponent. What does Paul talk about? He says, have your shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. What Paul is saying to us, do you not understand, believer, that as Paul says in Romans 5.1, therefore, uh, because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Putting on the shoes fitted with the, 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 the gospel of peace means I know that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I am now an ally of God, a friend of God, not his enemy anymore. I am at completely at peace with God because I am resting in what Jesus did to get me right with God rather than earn my way. Believers, we get into trouble in spiritual warfare when we forget that the only person in the world who can really harm us is God himself, and he's at peace with us. Not through our actions, but through his actions, through Jesus Christ. And it is absolutely crucial for us to believe that under pressure. We move on to verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield for a Roman soldier, it's not that little round thing. You see kids playing with this? I mean, I've seen they got the armor of God thing. The shield was a huge shield. It is a shield that would guard your entire body. And the reason why it was important is enemy soldiers back here in the the first century, they would lob 
uh, tar-baked uh, arrows that were on fire and would launch them to the enemy. And if that tar, which you could not dislodge, got caught on your body in any way and was on fire and you couldn't get it off of you because it would just stick to you, it would burn you and it would impair you and it would kill you. And so that shield was designed to put over you to cover all of your body so that when those arrows with tar that were flaming would hit the shield and be extinguished so they wouldn't hurt you. And the shield of faith is simply a picture, I think, of when we do spiritual warfare is that we believe everything that Jesus Christ did for us. We believe in him. The object of our faith is him and he is the one who protects us. It's not, I don't think it's so much about us conjuring up faith and making sure we have enough faith. It's making sure that our faith is in the right object, Christ, that protects us in our spiritual warfare. We move on here to verse 17. You take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The helmet of salvation, obviously a helmet's very important. Your cranium is a very important part. If you get that damaged or injured, you would be ineffective in a battle. And what is supposed to protect us? Our minds. Our minds are supposed to be immersed with the salvation that we have by grace. We need to think in those terms. We need to see ourselves in those terms. We need to functionally understand that that is our identity and that is what protects us in spiritual warfare along with the, 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 the sword. And that sword would have been a, it wouldn't be a long sword. It would have been a, a more defensive sword. And Paul says that the sword is a picture of the word of God. It's interesting when you think about this um, is when Jesus was tempted by Satan himself, three times Satan came to Jesus and tried to get him to, 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 to tempt him into sin. And every single time Jesus responded to Satan with the word of God to deal with the temptation. And so I think what Paul is saying to us, when we are tempted by Satan with his schemes, with his lies, we have to combat those lies, combat those temptations with the truth and reality of the word of God. And of course, I think that's sometimes a challenge for us, is it not? Is we don't have enough scripture memorized or thought through. We're not regularly building our identity in Christ through the word of God. And when we're under pressure, when we're under siege, we don't have a lot to say. The pastor that I sat under up in Michigan, I was a young kid at the time, seven, by by age seven to 11, tended him. Bert Westenberg was his name. Uh, He uh, one day, the, the, the Detroit Police Department arrested him falsely. They thought he was a major uh, criminal with, and that they were searching for. It was a misidentification of him. They had him in jail for uh, uh, more than a day. Um, there was actually a little settlement to try to make things right because they had the wrong guy. But it was interesting as a little boy, I was sort of listening to this story and like, what would happen if, you know, I got arrested and I was falsely charged and falsely arrested. And the pastor was telling us this story and he told the story. He said, I was so flabbergasted for what they were charging me with everything. All charges were dropped and, 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 you know, eventually he said, the only verse I could remember of all the scripture I had memorized, I could only remember John 3.16. 
I was so flabbergasted. And one of the challenges he told us is that when you get in difficult situations, John 3, 16 is a great verse, but it might be nice to have a few more in your head, right? So this is the second strategy. It's the example. It's the, the model, so to speak, of a Roman soldier. And every last piece of that armor is signifying to us the objective realities of who we are. Everything in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 that is true of us because of grace. It's true of us not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it. It's given to us by grace. Simply believing in what Jesus did, that identity, both individually and corporately, has to be the way we confront the world and live in the world. That's what we must keep straight in our minds. That's what must become our our functional identity so that we can withstand the lies that Satan's going to throw at us. You know, that's the rub, is it not? If you really wake up tomorrow and you wake up functionally putting yourself into a situation where your identity is really mostly about Christ, all right? You wake up in the morning and say, you know, I have, I have peace with God. The God of the universe is at peace with me through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. If I wake up in the morning and say, the very righteousness of Christ is on me. And when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And that is why I'm right with God. If I would, if I would wake up and say, I'm part of the family of God. If I would wake up and say, my sins are completely forgiven. If I would wake up and say, nothing can happen today to keep me from the future of being with God in heaven. If all of these identity things that we've, we looked at in Ephesians over the last couple of months, if I believe them all, I would be in a much different position to live out the purposes that God has for me. I would be able to more readily, I think, and you would be more readily, ready to lay down your life to see the redemption plan of God go through this church and through you to see the world reunited under the Lordship of Christ. You would. But what happens to us? Well, for some students, what subtly happens to you is that your academic performance becomes your functional identity. And you're in trouble. Because you're trying to perform and do well and succeed and, 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 and get the right grades. And that's really what, 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 where your identity lies. And that will pull you away from Christ quicker than anything. Now, students, don't, don't go to your parents and say, the pastor said I didn't have to study so hard. Study. But it shouldn't be your identity. Parents, we get into this situation. We make our children our identity. If you're depending upon your child to, to sort of validate you rather than have Jesus Christ be the one who validates you, you will be in a world of trouble. You won't discipline your child well. You'll be too harsh. You'll be frustrated. You won't be patient. You've got to have this child perform 
differently today. You can't function. But that's not what the text is telling you to do. If you make work your identity, if you make work your identity, you, you'll, either, you'll probably work too much. And your entire life will be beholden to how well work's going. If it's going well, you'll you're, you're, you're probably be pretty fun to be around. If work goes bad, you'll be a mess. So Paul tells us, put on the armor. Take everything I've talked to you about in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Take all of the things that are true of you because of what Christ has done and make that be the functional identity, the way you view yourself, the way you view God. Lastly, prayer is also a part of this spiritual warfare. It's part of the strategy. Look at verse 18. He says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as they ought to speak. It's interesting that what Paul says at the end of putting on the armor of God, he then asks the Ephesian believers to pray for them. He says, pray at all times, make all kinds of requests for one another. And notice what he says, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. This is the part of the Bible we don't like as Christians. Perseverance? Yeah, you know why you need perseverance? It's because the spiritual battle doesn't stop. The evil one doesn't take days off. It's always happening. He's always lying. He's always presenting these other options to you. And then Paul says, pray that God would give me boldness so that I can proclaim the gospel and that I can declare the gospel boldly as I ought to speak. Paul connects spiritual warfare to your ability to take the gospel to the world, to your friends, your classmates, your co-workers, family, friends. Because part of the spiritual warfare that we're in is to make sure we stand against the lies of Satan so that we can do what we're called to do to see the world reunited under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And if we don't put on the armor, if we don't believe and get all of our strength from Christ, if we don't see what God has done for us and apply it to our lives and live out of that grace, if we listen to the lies, if we believe the lies, it prevents us from living out the beautiful and glorious calling that God has for us to take the gospel that brings the broken pieces of the universe back together to see that happen. So let me do two things as we close. I'm going to offer a prayer for us and um, we'll be sending this out to the whole church this week. It's, it's, it's a way to pray on the armor of God and, and Please, it's not a magic prayer. If you don't believe the words of the prayer, it's not going to help you. This isn't some like, magic thing to do. It's simply an expression of faith and confidence in Christ and who we are in Christ as part of our spiritual warfare. So I'm going to do that in just a minute. But I wanted to share a little bit from a letter from our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in Iran. Probably some of you don't know this, but the church in Iran today may be the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran of all places where it's illegal to go to church 
and where you risk a lot by being a follower of Jesus Christ. But the church is growing tremendously there. And they follow the news. They follow what's going on in our country. And they, some of the key leaders of the gospel movement in Iran wrote us a letter. You can find it on the internet, I'm sure. It's a letter from brothers and sisters in Christ in Iran, and it's very nice. They basically are saying, we can't wait to see you in heaven. We are all on the same team. We love you. We pray for you. Please pray for us. I just want to summarize some of the things they said that kind of help us to understand what's at stake in spiritual warfare. What's at stake if we, we don't live out of our identity? And one of the challenging things that they said to us, they said, dear North American church, we see that you're under siege with COVID. We see that you've got all kinds of political disunity of all kinds. Uh, We grieve with you. But then they said this, we don't have any freedom where we live. And while we would love to be free and while we would love there to be democracy, That is not as important to us as seeing the church of Jesus Christ built and people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Essentially what they're saying is we're going to have all eternity to have the freedom we long for now. And we're not going to waste time worried about democracy and that until we make sure that we do what Jesus Christ has told his church to do, to be the agency where the gospel goes through us and is lived out in us and see people come to faith in Christ. It goes on to say something like this, and it's very convicting. It feels like to us from a distance that you're more concerned with the issues of the current day than you are at extending the reputation and gospel of Jesus Christ. It also is convicting because it says, we're suffering mightily, and yet we believe that suffering is the agency that spurs our church forward. They sort of ask us the question, are you willing to embrace the suffering that might come to you if that's what it took to live out the gospel in your context. If we, by God's grace, would put on the armor of God, which means we put on who we are in Christ functionally, daily, regularly. If we lived out of that identity more consistently, if we rejected the lies of the enemy that tried to get us to put our identity in everything else but Jesus, if we embrace the purpose that God has for us and his church uh, more robustly in our identity in Christ, putting on this armor, being persevering in the spiritual battle. I think the massive difference we can make for Christ is pretty significant. So let's close in a, in a word of prayer. I'm going to pray the armor of God on. You can get this online. We'll send it out this week. I encourage you to use it in your own personal and devotional life as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We confidently take the belt of truth that you offer us as believers in Jesus Christ. We reject Satan's lies and his deceiving ways to gain advantage over us. We desire to believe only the truth, to live the truth, to speak the truth, and to know the truth. Lord, thank you that Satan cannot stand against the bold use of your truth. 
Lord, thank you for the sandals of peace you have provided. I pray that you would help us to stand on the solid rock of peace, knowing that we have peace with you because we have been declared to be as righteous as Jesus Christ by your work on the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are completely satisfied with the payment for my sins that Jesus made on the cross. Lord Jesus, thank you for the breastplate of righteousness and I put it on recognizing that in you, Jesus, your righteousness has been given to me and I stand before God fully accepted, not through my righteousness, but through yours. Lord, I put on the helmet of salvation, recognizing that my mind is a particular target in spiritual warfare. Protect my mind. Help me to bring every thought captive and obedient to Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to fill my mind with a deep assurance that my salvation is based not on my performance, but on the trustworthiness of Christ's promise to me. Lord, I take up the shield of faith. I pray that you would help me believe you and believe what you've done for me. And then in having faith in you and what you did, the fiery darts of the evil one and his lies will be quenched. Lord, I take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Lord, help me to use the word of God against the temptations I have to put my identity in other places. Help me to use the word of God in the temptations I face, knowing that through your word, you provide truth and power. And Lord, I thank you for the gift of prayer that you would help us to pray and help our church to pray and help us individually to pray, knowing that in prayer, we are asking God to do what only he can do in spiritual warfare. We are depending upon you, Lord, through Christ to give us victory. Help us, Lord, as individuals, as individuals and as a church to stand in your power, to stand in the power of Christ, to persevere, and that in doing so, you would allow us as individuals and as a church to live out the beauty of your redemptive plan that you've invited us in by grace so that the world bit by bit would be put back together through your gospel now and one day fully experience the full consummation of your redemptive plan when you come back again. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name.